Uh, we started this uh, series a couple weeks ago, The Waiting Room, and honestly, the response has been overwhelming, uh, maybe more than any other series that we've done. And so um, today, I want to go really deep. I, I want to kind of um, just really go to the apex of what we're talking about. And here, for some of you, you're going to have two responses. For some of you, you're going to be at the place to go, well, I don't believe that. And that's fine. I'm not going to coerce you into believing anything. And maybe you'll even go, this is why I've, I haven't embraced the Jesus thing. And I get that too. Um, then others of you are, may have the response of, I've been around the Jesus thing for a while. And I don't know if I've ever really heard that. And I think you made it up. And I'm okay with that too. Um, because for some of you, what we may talk about may even blow up your theology a little bit. And the, the context for where I want to go today as we talk about the waiting room seasons of our life is I've had multiple conversations over the years with people who are in the waiting room, who've experienced um, sometimes incredible adversity. And at some point along the way, it never happens initially, but at some point along the way, they got to the place in that waiting room or in that season of adversity to somehow, and this is kind of uncomfortable, is that somehow in that began to see it and receive it as coming from the loving hands of their heavenly father. And that's kind of uncomfortable. In fact, the first, the first conversation I had around that was 15 years ago, and it was actually with my own dad. And my dad, along with my mom, lost their 27-year-old son uh, when I was a junior in high school, my brother, who had two uh, young kids. He was married, and it happened suddenly. And I remember talking to my dad because I watched my parents walk through a season where obviously they were overwhelmed with grief. Obviously, it wrecked their world and their life, and their life and our life would never be the same again, and, and many of you have experienced that. But I also watched them walk through that full of faith. And I watched my dad and my mom walk through that and never shake their fist at God and never walk away in the midst of all the natural emotion. And, and even a couple years ago, my mom was diagnosed with something that is incurable, and I've watched them put that on display again. And I remember 15 years ago about asking him the question as, as he walked through um, that experience, like, Dad, how did you maintain faith? Like, how did you not get to that place that so many of us get to where you just checked out and walked away or shook your fist at God? And I'll never forget his words, and these, this is almost a verbatim quote, is at some point along the way, even this, though obviously we would never choose this, is that I chose to see this as coming from the hands of my loving Heavenly Father. What? So for the next few minutes, what I want to talk about, just to I, I throw it out there and be really upfront, is it, it's, there's kind of tension in it. At some level, it's, um, it, it may be hard to even grasp, so we're in a journey for the next couple of minutes, but here's what I knew as I was um, working through this series, that if I didn't move to this place and what we're going to talk about today, I would have really betrayed some of you, because some of you, this is exactly where you are, what I'm going to talk about. And in, in other cases, this is the way forward for you. And if we wouldn't have talked about what we're going to talk about for the next couple minutes, this really would have done you a disservice. So here's the thing to recap, and then we're going to dive in. But in this series, we've all come around this one question, what do you do while you're waiting? Like while you're waiting on God, for some of you have walked away from God because of a waiting season, but what do you do specifically when you're in a waiting season and you can't fix it? Like it's one of those seasons where you can't go out today and just make a decision and it's all going to be better. You can't. You just have to wait. Or in a waiting season where it's an unresolvable tension and it might not get better. Like what do you do in that, those seasons where you're in a marriage and you, felt, you feel like you've done everything you can do and now you're in a place you don't know if he's going to change. You don't know if she's going to change. You don't know if it's going to work out and you're just waiting 
or you're in a place where you, you've been in this season of singleness for a while, and there is some options, but they're not good options, and you're just kind of in a place in your life where you're waiting. Or maybe it's a circumstance where there's a hurt that you've experienced, something's been done to you. And you've got some emotion that you carry around from season to season, relationship to relationship, and you're pleading with God, like, is there ever going to be a place where I don't feel this and drag this around with me anymore? Or maybe it's a thing where you have an adult child, and your adult child has gone off the rails, and you're at a a place where you can't fix it any longer. You You can't make it better, and so you're just watching, and you're waiting, and you're praying, but there's... There's nothing that you can do. Maybe it's a diagnosis that you can't change. They can treat, but it's not curable. Maybe it's you're in a place right now where you are far from where you thought you'd be at this season of your life. But whatever it is, you're just in a waiting season. So that's what I mean by waiting season. And for some of you, there's no good options. Like, again, you can't go make a decision that's going to make it better. And in fact, all your options are things like, well, I'm just going to run. I'm going to move the other direction. I'm going to check out of the relationship. Or maybe your options are to self-medicate, which isn't going to end well. Maybe your options are to get to a place where you actually make a decision in your waiting that compounds the issues that you're already facing out of desperation. For some of you to drive yourself into anxiety and into fear, or the other thing is, we do do this a lot, is you're in a waiting season, you're in a season of adversity, and you just start looking around at everybody else and comparing you and your situation to everybody around you. Like for some of you, it's the reason that, that you've walked away. And here's the thing that I know in that season uh, of what, what do you do when you're waiting is we are tempted, as we've said, to draw really bad conclusions about God, like conclusions in our uncertainty that maybe God is uncertain, or we start to draw conclusions that maybe God is inactive because he doesn't seem to be doing anything in my circumstance, or maybe God's angry. Like, I'm bad, I've done something bad, God's mad, and that's the reason for why I'm walking through what I'm walking through. And then others of us, you pray long enough, you don't hear, you start to believe maybe God's forgotten. And we start to draw really bad assumptions about God that can tempt us to walk away from God or shake our fist at God. And then as we've said, we start to draw bad assumptions about us that you're in a season right now where you can't look ahead and ever think of a time where you'll experience peace again. It's over for you. Or maybe you start to draw assumptions about your circumstance or life that, that you're, you're never going to have anything good come out of this. There's never anything that you could see beneficial coming out of this season of adversity or this season of waiting. And then for others of us, I think this is another big one too, is that we just start to think in our waiting is pointless. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to do what's right through this. I've tried to honor God. And it doesn't seem like God even knows. It doesn't even seem like God is aware. And so if I'm going to be, you know, experience adversity either way, then it is pointless. It's pointless to keep trying. It's pointless to try to continue to be faithful. So what do you do in your waiting? And here's the thing, and this kind of brings comfort to me, is we looked at this last week. As you look at the scriptures, every incredible man and woman of faith, many that we hold up as like a standard if you're a follower of Jesus or maybe you learn about them in Sunday school, every single one of them experienced intense adversity. Every single one of them experienced seasons of waiting. And what's interesting is they never seemed to, to deal with the tension of a good God in adversity or a loving God in adversity and waiting. They just kind of understood it was a part of the deal at some level. It's, it's just a part of the story. And, and here's the thing for some of us is that in our Western way of thinking, it's just so easy to think that everything should always work out. And I think, honestly, social media generation has made it even more difficult because now you know what everybody else drives, 
You know what everybody, where everybody else lives. You know what everybody else's marriage looks like, even though most of that is fronting. You know what everybody else is doing, where their kids go to school, what activities they're involved in. I mean, you can be having a great day feeling amazing about yourself, hop onto Instagram, and immediately feel like crap, right? Like you, you watch somebody digging wells in Uganda and taking care of orphan children. You're like, ah, it's 3 o'clock. I haven't got off the couch yet. Like I'm a loser. But it's just this, this dynamic. We're more aware than ever before. But as you look at the scripture, they never really struggled with that tension. All of the people who brought us the story of Jesus, all of them experienced the dynamics that we're talking about in this, this series. One of the guys more than any others is Paul. We started looking at him last week in his example. He's a guy that suffered intense seasons of waiting, unbelievable over-the-top adversity. A guy that started out trying to kill and stomp out the Jesus movement, then became a Jesus follower, and then was tasked with the greatest, really, um, responsibility in his generation to move the church forward and ultimately change history. And what's interesting about Paul's story is just as he was kind of getting his life sorted out, like he had all this baggage, there's things he had done in his past that he tried to move beyond. And just as he was starting his ministry and things were starting to look up for him, the scripture says that he was hit with some kind of ailments and we don't know what it is. But just as things were going well, he's hit with this thing that apparently was devastating. And Paul believed that this thing was outside of the will of God. In fact, Paul believed that because of what God had called him to do, he couldn't do what God had called him to do while suffering from this ailment, whatever it was. So he expected and believed that God was going to take it away. And so he pleaded and he prayed. And eventually he realized it's not going away. And what Paul writes about that circumstance and experience is profound. And he, he unpacks for us and writes down what he learned through all of that. And I'm telling you. If you are in the house right now, if you're listening, if you're podcasting, if you're listening on radio, if you're in a waiting season right now, this is for you. And here's what Paul says. You may be familiar with some of these verses. In 2 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 7, he writes to the church in Corinth. And uh, if you've got our app, go to Sermon Media Resources. If you've got a physical Bible, that's cool. Um, or you can check it out on the screen. Are you still with me at the 1030? Therefore, this is Paul writing about this experience that I just described. Therefore, in order to, meaning purpose statement, in order to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassingly great revelations. Like Paul, in a humble way, like I'm the man. Like God's used me to do more in this generation than anybody. Um, in order to keep me from becoming conceited and because of these surpassing great revelations, there was gifted me. There was given me. And this is the common Greek word, real quick, for any type of gift. The Greek word that Paul uses is never associated with punishment. This is like a word that they would use to describe like a birthday gift, a Christmas gift. When you get an Amazon package on your front door, there's that momentary excitement and you're like, oh, I never buy anything. It's another thing that my wife bought that I don't care about. But whatever like any type of just common gift, somebody's gifting you, Paul's like, okay, this, I was given a gift. And so the question is, okay, cool, Paul, what, what, what were you given? What was the gift? And here's Paul describing it. Paul says, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Okay, Paul, that's a little dark, number one. 
Number two, it's kind of the opening line of a horror movie um, that looks something like this. If they hear you, they're going to hunt you. Um, like that's what that reminds, that's the movie poster for what Paul's writing about right now. That's supposed to be a really good movie. So back to the verse. Um, back to the verse. Okay, Paul, I think you have your, your language kind of mixed up because gift should not be in the same sentence as a thorn. And, and thorn just means, again, literal translation, this perpetual, ongoing, won't go away. Uh, you can't say gift and thorn in my flesh in the same sentence. You certainly can't say gift and messenger of Satan in the same sentence. And you can't say gift and use the word torment. So, Paul, I think what you meant to say all due respect, greatest theologian in history. I think what you meant to say is a gift that was given to, or not even gift, somehow punishment to pay you back. Somehow this thing that was given, which is a curse or some kind of payback for maybe what happened in the previous parts of your life. But this is certainly not a gift. And then it's really interesting, go back for a second, is the word torment in this verse means literally in the Greek, not to go too crazy with this, but it just means it, it, to strike in the face. It was the word that in the first century they would use for like bullying. It's the same Greek word. And so Paul's like, it's like I'm getting punched in the face every day. It, it, it's like I'm getting beat up and beat down. And, and in this particular circumstance, this isn't something that you can kind of move to the margins. Paul's like, it's front and center in my life. It's something that won't go away. Whatever the ailment was, it was something that he's reminded of every time he wakes up, every single day, which is exactly where some of you are at. Like if you had to use a word that may even be the word, like I, I kind of tormented. It's over the top. It's dominated my life. It, it just beats me up and beats me down every, every single day. It's just always there. So Paul had this ailment that basically could be described this way. The ailment is painful. It was humiliating and it was completely debilitating. And we don't know what it was. There's a good chance it was a physical ailment. There's a really good chance it was a mental illness. There's a really good chance it was some kind of eye issue, but Paul, for a reason, doesn't tell us what it is because then we wouldn't be able to relate to him. He just says, listen, uh, it, it, was a, it felt like a messenger of Satan. It, it felt like it came to torment me. It was painful, it was humiliating, and it was debilitating. And here's what is so almost weirdly comforting to me. Here's the guy who was used to do something in his generation that impacted the world more than any other in individual throughout the scriptures and throughout history. And there you are, and he's got this painful, debilitating, humiliating thing, ailment. And you're like, why would you do that to the greatest instrument of your glory in your generation? Why would you do him like that? Why would you leave him with this? And come on, if you have the view that somehow your relationship with God is God does or I do and God does, uh, imagine if that were the case, imagine the leverage that Paul had. Uh, imagine the bargaining power that Paul had. Hey, I'm going to be the greatest church planner in history. I'm going to change the world, single greatest world changer outside of Jesus. Imagine the kind of leverage he had, and there he is, and he's just left with this thing. And he thinks, there's no way I can go on and accomplish what God wants me to do until he takes this away. Can I just say this real quick? This, this is for some of you, I don't know who. But whatever that thing is that is left in your life that you think somehow is from the devil can be used by God to fulfill his purpose for your life. 
And that is uncomfortable, and that's not emotionally satisfying, but the deal, the ailment, the education thing, the dream that's died, the financial disaster, and it's all about, I think the devil did this or Satan's behind this. Well, yeah, maybe, but God can use that to fulfill his God-ordained purpose for your life. And so there Paul is. And at some level, as weird as this is, he sees this as a gift. Paul, really? And it's got a purpose. But then I love this because Paul does what we would do. Like he's still not okay with it. I mean, he he has chosen in this season to see it that way. But then he begins to do what every single one of us would do. And he cries out to God and he pleads with God and he does exactly what we would do in a time of waiting. Verse 8, three times. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Like Paul basically over and over again, God, I can't do this. Until you heal this, I don't know how I'm going to move forward. Until you rectify this relationship, I don't know how I'm going to take another step. Until you take this away, I don't know how I'm going to be able to go on. Until you revive this, I don't know how I'm going to function. Like this is dominating every area of my life. and I, God, I just can't do it. And again, that's exactly where some of you are at. And here's what's interesting is this three times is not talking about like Paul prayed in the morning three different times and God didn't do anything. This either means three seasons or three years of his life. This is every single day Paul getting up and I'm going to pray again. I'm going to plead again. I'm going to ask God again, God, please, would you do something? Please, would you take this away? God, I think this is your will. This is not some frivolous request. I don't think I can do what you've called me to do until you come through, until you answer. I need you to show up. I need to know that you're active. And for maybe three years, Paul's just crying out to God. Can I say this one other thing if you're in the house? And, and this, I'll try to keep this low key, but this is the thing that simultaneously breaks my heart and makes me angry. Because some of you are coming from a background and you've had the idea sold to you that the relationship wasn't healed or they weren't healed of that physical thing or God didn't answer your prayer somehow because you didn't have enough faith. That you didn't have enough faith to lasso God into whatever you wanted God to do. Can I just say this? Paul had more faith than all of us combined in this room. And in fact, can I say this other thing? Is that if you're, and I'll try not to be too harsh here, if your theology ultimately with its implications says that you have more faith than Jesus and Paul and John the Baptist, I'll just straight up tell you, your theology is wrong. Here's what I mean. We can all agree. Let's just take Jesus. We can all agree that Jesus had more faith than I have and Jesus had more faith than you have. And yet Jesus went to a cross and was murdered and was crucified. And he had more faith than anybody is ever going to have on the planet. So if you have a theology that says it's going to be pain-free and problem-free and God's going to do whatever I want if I just have enough faith, that puts you into the category of having more faith than Jesus and Paul. And I love you. You do not have more faith than Jesus and Paul. But somewhere along the way, somebody did a disservice to you to portray this as some genie in the bottle or cosmic vending machine. And so now you're in a place where you are angry at God about promises God never made. And this is the thing that makes me angry. And some of you are carrying around shame because they weren't healed and it didn't come through. And you think the problem is with you because you didn't have enough faith. And I just want to tell you, nowhere do you see that in the scripture. Nowhere do you see that in the scripture. And there is nothing wrong with you. It has nothing to do with the size of your faith. And in fact, every single man and woman of God with extraordinary faith, all of them suffered adversity. 
all of them went through seasons of waiting. All of them cried out to God for things and had God come back with, "Uh uh-uh. It had nothing to do with the size of your faith. The promise of the scripture is adversity will come, the waiting season will come, and Jesus says, and I will be with you through every single one of those circumstances. But verse 9, Paul finally gets an answer, but he said to me, and this is what like breaks my heart for people who are in a season of waiting right now that maybe is really extreme and they're asking God to do something. This would almost be enough if we could just hear that. Even if it's not the answer we want, God, I just want to know you're active. I just want to know you hear my prayers. I just want to know that you are involved in my life. And so God said to Paul, and you maybe know these words, my, my grace is sufficient. Paul, for probably multiple years pleading, God, I need you to take this away. God, I need you to show up. God, I think it's your will. I need you to somehow intervene in this. And this is God's answer to Paul. My grace is sufficient. Your marriage is hanging on by a thread, and it may not move down the road to healing and health the way you want it to. My grace is sufficient for you. You're in a diagnosis where they can maybe treat it, but they can't cure it, and you don't know how long this season is going to last. My grace is sufficient for you. Literally enough. It is adequate. I know you would never choose it. My grace is sufficient for you, and this is so powerful. For my power is made perfect in your weakness. And here's the, here's the thing, really, it, to understand this verse and understand the literal context, you could actually introvert these two words that my power is sufficient for you for my grace is made perfect in weakness. That those two words are interchangeable where God is saying to Paul, listen, my power is enough for you. My grace, my power, my strength, it is enough for you. So Paul, no. But I'm going to give you the grace and I'm going to give you the power, and I'm going to give you the strength to keep going, even though it's not going to change. And, and literally, this word power, grace, these two interchangeable words, means that, that my power, this is God saying to Paul, my power is brought to its full measure. It's brought to its full potential. It's brought to perfection and to maturity in your weakness, which is kind of powerful that God's saying, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that is available to you, the grace and power that can walk you through any season of waiting and any season of adversity, I'm telling you, that power is perfected. It, it literally, God shows it off. God brings it to full display in a place of your weakness, in the place of your adversity, that where you experience his power the most is not with your tidy little Instagram life, but in the place of your greatest mess and in the place of your greatest weakness. And come on, isn't this true? Just, just at a human level, you don't even have to believe the Jesus thing for a second, just go with me, is that generally incredible strength is born out of unbelievable adversity. The people that you look at who are the strongest generally have gone through the greatest hurt. Let me give you the example of Jesus again, because I'm telling you, nobody has strength and nobody has power like Jesus. Let me just preach for a second. Like there, there is nobody like Jesus who willingly allowed himself to go to a cross or willing, willingly allowed himself to be nailed to a cross, to suffer excruciating pain, to be tortured, to be 
treated as a common criminal to suffer things physically that we cannot even imagine. And all the while, he could have called down legions of angels. At any moment, he could have said a word and stopped all of it. And there he is suffering that kind of pain, that kind of torture, that kind of willing sacrifice. And he cries out to his father in the midst of that pain and says, Father, do not hold this against them. Nobody has power like Jesus' power. And then he goes into a grave. And he brings himself back to life. Jesus has the power in him to bring himself back from the dead. And then he's got extra strength left over, if you read the passage, to fold up all of the linens, make sure everything is neat and tidy, walk out of the grave because nobody has power like Jesus' power. Nobody has strength like Jesus' strength. And then he gives us the promise that one day, guys, I'm coming back on a white horse, tatted up, a sword in my hand, I'm going to handle everything. Every evil. I'm going to crush every injustice. I am going to right every wrong. I'm going to set up a kingdom that will never end, that will never be upended. I move kings around. I bring up nations. I pull them back down. I command the dead. I command nature. I'm going to set up this reigning kingdom and king that will never, ever end because nobody has power like Jesus. Nobody has strength like Jesus. And yet Isaiah said that he was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, because it was the suffering of his crucifixion that led to the power of his resurrection. And he says that that, if any of you could just get this, if that same power that raised Christ from the dead is available to you, which is what the scripture says, and your waiting and your adversity is why he was able to say to Paul, my grace, my power, it is enough. It is sufficient. So Paul, I'm going to flex my muscle, and I'm going to show off of my strength and my power, but it's going to be on the stage of your weakness. So no. And so Paul was left with something that was painful and humiliating and debilitating, and it was permanent. And Paul, I love you. Paul, I couldn't be any more pleased with you. Paul, there is, there, you couldn't have any more of my favor on your life right now. I could never love you more, and I could never love you less than I do in this moment. And oh, by the way, Paul, I'm going to use you to change the world. Oh, and one other thing, Paul. You are right in the center of my will for your life. And in this season of waiting, my answer is no, but there's a promise. My grace will be sufficient and enough for you. Can I just say this? God will not require something from you that he does not put within you. And so there Paul is. Can you imagine, like, what's his next step? He's given his life. He's sacrificed everything. He's given up it all. He has pleaded. He has prayed. He has asked, and he gets the answer. Paul, I love you. No. And then I, what he says next, this is, I say this all the time. This is why I, nobody could have made up the New Testament. This is so over the top. Nobody would make this up. Here's Paul's response. Therefore, oh, what, so what are you going to do in the waiting room, Paul, with all of this and getting a no and knowing it's not going to change? Therefore, you've heard this before, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that purpose statement, so that 
Christ's power, Christ's glory may rest on me. Paul's basically like, like listen, since this is not going to go away, since this is getting in my way, since this is in the way I believe of what God has called me to do, and since everybody is always going to ask me in every season of my life, Paul, why are you still dealing with that? Paul, why didn't God take that away? Paul, don't you have enough faith? Since I'm going to carry this for the rest of my life, here's what I have decided to do, is I am just going to take that thing, and I'm going to allow it to take center stage in my life. I'm going to embrace it full on. People ask me about it. I'm like, well, let me give you all the details, because you don't even know. It's worse than you think. I'm just going to full on embrace this. I'm going to full on own this. I'm going to full on come to a place where this is going to take center stage in my life because here's what I know from God's revelation is that God is going to move his power into that when I'm willing to do that. And so yeah, I'm in a place where this weakness is all over me. I thought God was going to take it away, but here's what I know. God's created me for his glory, and so I'm going to embrace this and allow this to be the thing in my life that reflects glory to him. So people look at me and go, Paul, you are the greatest church planner in history. Paul, you're amazing. But Paul, that's kind of disgusting, whatever it is you have or whatever it is you're dealing with. And I don't understand that. And so, man, how amazing is Jesus that he would use you? And Paul's like, that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to embrace so that my life, my ministry, my story reflects his glory because that's what my heavenly father is all about. So I'm taking this weakness and I'm moving it up to center stage because it is in my weakness. It's in my messes that God's most glorified. And so really, this is the summary, because this is a complex kind of working of Greek terms, and so I don't want to lose you. So let me just give you this summary, go back. Really, the summary of this text is just this, that embracing your weakness is the prerequisite to receiving and acquiring Jesus' power. And Paul's like, when I decided to embrace it, I received God's power in full measure. Can I just say this to you, that for a lot of you, that area where you're waiting that area where there's an unresolvable tension, that area that may not change, that area that maybe you are most embarrassed by, this is why this is so huge for you, because it's in those areas that you are most tempted to hide. And it's in those areas that you are most tempted to pretend. And it's in those areas that you are most tempted to lie. And Paul's going, once I got over all of that and just said, no, 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 I'm just going to bring it to center stage. I'm just going to embrace it. I'm going to let everybody know. I'm not going to hide. I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend any longer. I'm telling you, Christ's power met me there. One of the most profound examples of that, honestly, is my wife. We, um, we met. We got married in a short amount of time. Quite frankly, we were pretty arrogant because we thought we had it together. Um, I never really had seasons where I went way off the rails, and so we just did everything right, and we were following Jesus, and we'd probably write books, and people could read about them, of how amazing our relationship and marriage was. Like, we just had it together. And within a few months of our marriage, everything hit the fan. And my wife began to, to walk through some things that we had no context for, and eventually was diagnosed with a mental illness, and we... We didn't even know what that was. And at that time, the church wasn't talking about that, still doesn't talk about it a lot. And there were things happening where we thought, there, I don't even know how we're going to move through this. We don't even know what's going on. And it was wrecking every 
part of our life to the point of I offered a resignation to step away as pastor because we had just started a church because I thought there's no way that I can do this. We experienced unbelievable just turmoil and we were embarrassed and we didn't know what was going on and we had some extreme stories that I'll tell you another time and and I really thought that our marriage was going to end and like there was just no way forward and God began to show up. And God began to heal, but not heal completely. And I'll never forget, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit, as my wife began to come to the courageous place to go, we're not going to hide this. We're not going to be embarrassed by this. We're not going to lie. But instead, it's going to take center stage in our life. We're going to let everybody know, oh, you know our story? Let me tell you some more details about our story. It has taken center stage. There is nothing to be embarrassed about. We've seen Jesus move. I'm going to talk about it. I'm going to make talks on stage. I'm going to blog. And I'm telling you, when it became front and center, when it became the thing, when it was nothing to pretend about or hide about, I'm telling we saw Christ's power come into that in a way that was absolutely supernatural. But it only happens, Paul says, when you stop hiding and you stop pretending. And so he concludes this way. It's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness and insults in hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. In this famous line, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. For some of you, this is the obstacle to moving forward and finding Christ's power in that thing that is most difficult in your life. Because in Western culture, we do not like to do this. And most of us, especially in church world, I hammer on this a lot, we lie constantly. You pretend constantly. There's a multiple of you that are coming in here today, and it's all a lie. It's all a facade. You're a mess but you only share the highlights. And Paul's going, when you come to the place, and I know it's difficult, but it's why you're not experiencing Christ's power in the midst of your greatest struggle. And so as we end, I think it all comes down. What you do in the waiting and how God leads you comes down to this phrase that we, we started with, that in order to, next slide, I was given a thorn. In order to, I was given a thorn. Meaning at some point along the way for God to fulfill his purpose through me, he gave me, as weird as it sounds, he gave me a gift and that gift was a thorn. And here's what Paul came to realize, even though he wanted God to take it away, at some level it was a gift with a promise that God is going to be with me through it and a purpose. And I don't know what the purpose is. I don't know where this is leading. I don't know what God is going to do through this. But here's what I know Paul would say. I had to see it as a gift and not an enemy. I had to move to a place where I didn't try to hide it, but instead I embraced it. And when I did, I saw Christ's power meet me in my greatest struggle. And you're still talking about it. So that brings us to you. And here's what I would say to you is that if you believe that God can change your circumstances, and most of you do, if you believe that God can heal that marriage, if you believe that God could bring healing to that diagnosis, if you believe that God could revive that dream, if you believe that God can, but for some reason God has decided not to, then you have the option, you have the invitation to receive whatever that thing is, whatever that struggle is as a gift with a promise, I'm going to be with you and with a purpose. And here's why I say it's an option, because I don't think that I have the authority to be able to tell you, you must. Because here's what I know by experience is that many times God has to lead you there. 
And many times it's a journey. And many times it comes after seasons of wrestling and pleading and praying and agonizing. But there is the invitation that you can receive this as a gift. It's so uncomfortable with a promise and a purpose. And can I just say this one more thing for some of you who think that that's somehow that's a lack of faith. The Gospels talk about this tension with Jesus that I think underscores this the night before Jesus was going to be crucified. And Jesus experienced this exact same tension. And here's how Luke records it, just to give you a broader context. Luke 22, 41. This is Jesus who withdrew about a stone's throw away uh, behind them, talking about his disciples. And he knelt down and he prayed. And listen to what Jesus prayed. Father, if you are willing, meaning I know you can. I know you can in an instant. But I'm asking if you're willing. Father, if you're willing, take this cup, this thing that I'm about to face, take this from me. Like I, I know Jesus would say, I know it's a gift. I, I know that there's the promise that, Heavenly Father, you're going to sustain me through this and what's going to happen over these next few hours. And I know the purpose. It is going to change the world. It's going to offer salvation to the world. But God, Heavenly Father, if there's another way, could you take this away? And then Jesus prays this, yet not my will, Father, not my will, but yours be done. You have permission to ask God to remove your thorn. And God has permission to say no. And neither your standing with him or your faith in him requires a yes. And at some point along the way, like most of us are really, really thankful that in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night before Jesus was going to be crucified, that our Heavenly Father said no. And at some point along the way, I don't think you can experience the full measure of God's grace is there if you're a follower of Christ. God's love is never unended. But to really receive God's grace in terms of his power in your struggle and your circumstances, I don't think you can experience it until somewhere along the way you come to that place that Jesus came to in the garden. Father, not my will. But your will to be done because when I resist your will inadvertently, I resist your grace. And when I resist your will, I resist the experience ultimately of your power. And I would never choose this. But God, I'm going to move to a place to just say your will be done as uncomfortable as it is. And in some way that I can't explain that the scripture talks about, in those seasons and in that struggle and in those circumstances, you enter into the sufferings of your Savior. And I don't understand how this works, but somehow you relate and you have a connection with your heavenly father and with your savior, Jesus, in a way that you wouldn't experience any other way. Because in that moment, you are most like him as you enter in to that suffering. And it's why you have met people who would say, I would never, ever choose this. But I would never give up what God has done through this. Because there's some mystery to it. As we decide to say, God, your will be done. And so I just want to say this as uncomfortable as it is, but I just want to be fair to you. And for many of us, this is the way forward. God may choose to highlight and show off his power on the stage of your weakness. 
and you have the option to come to a place where you see it as a gift with a promise, he's going to be with you and he's going to use it. And it may be the epicenter of his greatest activity in your life right now. Last thing, there's this parable in the New Testament where it talks about, maybe you've heard about it, where Jesus talks about building your house on the rock that literally just meant on the foundation of Jesus, that in any circumstance, that in any situation, God loves you, God is with you, there is no condemnation that can come in your relationship with him. But when you build your house on the foundation of Jesus and the truth of Jesus, the promise is not that the rains won't come. The promise is that the house still stands and that the rain might be God's gift with a promise and with a purpose. And God may choose for me, for you, to show off his power and flex his muscle in your greatest weakness. Would you pray with me all over the house? If you're online, if you're podcasting, listening via radio, I want to invite you in right now. Jesus, we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I, I don't know the stories represented in this room. I know that you have wrecked a whole lot of people today already with your truth. And so I just pray that you would speak in to very individual and very personalized circumstances and experiences. And I know that at some level, this isn't emotionally satisfying, but for many of us, this, this is the hope, honestly, that we needed. This is the context that, that someone has failed to set for us. And so I pray for some that you would begin to heal them over some ridiculous theology or an invitation that was given on behalf of Jesus that you never, you never gave that you begin to heal their heart, that you begin to move in where they have carried shame that they have no business carrying. And you would just speak to that and you would just heal. I pray for some of us, this will be the context to let go of some things from the past. I pray, Lord, for others of us, you would, where there was no purpose, where we were so dry that almost in an instant this morning, you would begin to give us the context for purpose where we could never see it before. But God, do your thing all over this place and everybody who's listening all over the country to just give us wisdom to know what to do, to give us courage to do it. And God, move in our house in a powerful way. And we pray this in the name of your powerful name, the name of Jesus. Amen.